Welcome to the Scholarly Kitchen Podcast for July 31st, 2013. I'm Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Today, we look at challenges faced by scholarly societies in remaining relevant in an Internet era, a time when many of the traditional value-adds of societies, as publishers of print journals, for example, and as networking hubs, are increasingly subject to question. On the line with me to talk about it is Alice Meadows, the head of society relations at John Wiley and a chef in the scholarly kitchen. Alice, thanks for dropping in. Thank you for inviting me. Well, in the course of your work, uh, I'm assuming that you talk and interact with a large number of society leaders. How would you sum up what they're telling you or what you're hearing in terms of the challenges that societies are facing today, uh, especially in terms of this this whole notion of remaining uh, relevant? Yes, I'm lucky. I do get to talk to a lot of societies and associations, scholarly and some professional. And one thing to note right at the beginning is that they're very heterogeneous. You know, there's no two that are exactly alike. Some are big, some are small, some are international, some are local, uh, some are scholarly, some are professional, um, and they're right across all the different disciplines. But I do think they share many of the same challenges and, indeed, opportunities. So I would say the ones that come up again and again are things like attracting and retaining members, inevitably, and especially younger and sort of early career members um, is, is critically important for pretty much everyone I've spoken to. And I guess related to that, the perception that there's a need to develop new and kind of more flexible membership options, some of which may not even look like traditional membership at all. Engagement is the sort of new buzzword that many of them are bandying about, um, and which I think many of them believe is likely to be critical to their future success. But then you have the challenge of how do you actually measure engagement as opposed to mm-hmm. membership? And of course, how do you monetize it as well, which, um, you know, remaining uh, fiscally viable is also a, a key to remaining relevant. Certainly. It is. Yeah. Um, And then I think there's also some wider issues around the need to demonstrate their relevance, not just to their members, although that is very important, but also increasingly on a sort of a, to the wider community and globally. So, you know, groups like funders and policymakers are, you know, making decisions that are going to impact scholarly societies, but very often they're making those decisions without either consulting with them or in some cases rather scarily even being aware of what scholarly associations do and why they're important in in their communities. Well, let's step back and and talk about the first issue you mentioned, which is this this notion of trying to attract uh, members and in particular younger members. We do have this image, you know, over over the past few years of societies kind of almost bleeding off membership and, and of a general pattern of of uh, graying of society memberships. Uh, Yet there was a post you did earlier this year on the Scholarly Kitchen uh, in which you reported on a survey that suggested that at least in theory, um, young scientists continue to view societies as relevant and think these societies have a, a bright future. Uh, that suggests at least some reason for optimism if you can <laughs> if you can persuade them to become members at least yes, and I am an optimist, uh, I think generally anyway, but uh, even I was surprised actually i mean it was it was a small pool, and you know obviously there 's a limit to what you can extrapolate from such a small pool of responses. I think there were about a couple of hundred, but it was surprisingly positive. I think close to ninety percent currently belong to at least one society and around 80% thought that societies would continue to be at least as relevant, if not more so, in future, which which certainly is cause for hopefulness anyway. 
Um, I mean, I think part of the reason for that is that, you know, societies exist for reasons that are still needed, you know, things like disseminating information, helping with networking, helping with career progression, basically helping people to do their work better. And that's not going to go away. I think that's a big opportunity for societies. The challenge is how to do that in a way that will continue to engage and attract, you know, a new generation who work in a very different way and who communicate with other, each other in a very different way from previous generations. Um, and the other challenge, of course, is that other organizations, primarily online, are also providing some or maybe all of the same things now. So, you know, societies are in a much more competitive environment than perhaps they were a few years ago. Sort of taking off of that question and, and the notion you mentioned of fiscal viability, uh, let's talk about some of the challenges and the specific dynamics that people sometimes raise in explaining you know, where these challenges are coming from. And you just alluded, for example, to you know, online organizations that are providing uh, sort of some of the same value adds that used to be the, the, the province of societies. Let's talk about open access. We hear different things about the actual impact of this uh, on societies. Uh, how would you assess that based on what you're seeing? I think many people don't realize how much many, possibly most scholarly societies rely on the income from their journal subscriptions to, to be financially viable. Um, it varies a lot by discipline, obviously, and by size of organization and so on. But I think it's probably fair to say that in the vast majority of associations, certainly that I come across, the top three revenue streams will be journal subscriptions, the annual conference and membership dues. And for many, journal subscriptions are way up there. For some of our societies, they can be up to 90% of their total revenue. And I would say, on average, they're between 30 and probably 60 to 70%. So, you know, a really significant chunk of income there. And open access, you know, is, is a threat to that. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing, but it's a challenge that, that we all need to be aware of and be thinking about ways to address. So, while gold open access may replace some of the income, it's unlikely to replace all of it. I mean, particularly in the social sciences and humanities where, A, there's very little funding for gold, and B, um, because they publish fewer articles and may often have a very high rejection rate, you'd have to charge such an enormously high article publication charge that, that you know, just would not be, would not be viable. Mm-hmm. Um, so gold, you know, may help, but for, I would say, most societies isn't going to replace all of that income. And green open access, as long as subscriptions continue to exist, is probably not a bad thing. But if embargoes are too short and subscriptions start getting cancelled, then again, you're back in the same situation where, you know, your your journal's income is dropping and um, you need to find some way of replacing it. I think there's also, um, for, for societies, and this is a real problem, a conflict between often what their members want, which is, you know, the widest possible access to research, both for them and for others, and what the societies need to survive, which is a guaranteed income stream, not necessarily from their journals, but, you know, that's one at the moment. So I think they need to diversify, but I I hope they won't sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater, because I think that disseminating information is one of the critical things that societies have always done and I hope will continue to do. Well, you know, beyond open access, though, it seems that the rise of institutional subscriptions as, as, the, as the main model in an online environment has tended to kind of work in a way against societies by devaluing the, the pitch that they make to individuals. One of the interesting things we saw 
in this summer's STM meeting, the Report of the Future Lab group uh, was saying that they were seeing sort of a movement from institutional to individual in uh, services and marketing, that increasingly publishers were going to need to look very much at the end user as an individual and, and indeed had more sort of tools to do that. Do you see society starting to do anything like this? Yes, I do. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the need for more flexible models. I think there's a, there's a real sense that in order to survive and thrive, societies will need to pretty much abandon the kind of one-size-fits-all approach where, you know, you pay for a membership and you may pay a differential amount depending on whether you're a student or unemployed or a regular professional or whatever. But you essentially get the same package of member benefits and they'll basically be, you know, access to the journal, probably a print copy of the journal at the moment, maybe a discounted rate or free attendance at the society conference, that sort of thing. And instead, to look at how they can replace that with much more flexible, individualized, custom models of membership where, for example, you might decide to purchase a membership package that entitles you to free attendance at the conference plus 50 article downloads during the year Mm. or free attendance at a couple of seminars and access to a mentor and unlimited access to their journals, say. I'm I'm making this up, but, you know, so, so in other words, to put the purchasing power really back in the hands of the members to decide which bits of membership benefits they want and are prepared to pay for and which they don't. So it's interesting. Uh, societies are going to need to sort of start tinkering and, and innovating with uh, with uh, the membership models that have served them so well in the past. Uh, on the subject of innovation, there was a few weeks back also an interesting post, uh, all, again on the Scholarly Kitchen by uh, Robert Harrington about uh, what he called society-driven innovation, essentially suggesting that societies might provide new value to their membership by sort of serving as incubators of new ideas and tools and services uh, in this very technologically uh, active environment that we're in. Um, To me, that sounds good, but I guess I've always had the sense that uh, societies are, uh, you know, there's a fair amount of conservatism and, you know, baked into society thinking. Uh, Can societies really be this innovative? I mean, not to be too flip, but do you have any thoughts on that? probably fair comment that many, though obviously not all societies, um, have been somewhat conservative in the past and some, and still are to some extent. But I do think, certainly from talking to society officers, that they are very aware that that can't continue. I hosted a meeting of our society focus group just this week, and we were talking about sort of society pain points, and innovation was the thing that they all agreed was absolutely critical to their survival and is something they need help with. Um, You know, they can see it's a need that they have, but as organizations, they're not necessarily well-equipped right now to be innovative. So I think that's a real area of opportunity both for them and for organizations like publishers who are working with them. But I suppose that for smaller societies in particular, it's very hard to operate in an environment that is, you know, so driven by technological innovation. It seems like that's going to make standalone societies, you know, that much less viable. Um, I think uh, two things. On the positive side, I think societies are really well placed to help develop tools and services for their communities because they're so embedded in them. Um, and they really understand their needs in a way that, you know, often vendors don't or can't. So I think that's a real positive. I think you're right that it has been for some time and it's probably going to get increasingly tough for certainly small to medium-sized societies to survive on their own and 
you know, the sort of strategic partnerships um, and arrangements with publishers and others that, that we've seen flourish over the last I don't know, 20 to 30 years or so, I, I think will continue for the time being, um, not least because, as I've said probably a couple of times, you know, societies do need some sort of guaranteed income streams and, and those kind of partnerships can help with that. I think they also increasingly need to be able to navigate our more and more complex environment, not just in terms of technology, but also politically. You know, the introduction of funder mandates is, is a challenge both technologically, but also in, in other ways for societies to keep up to date with all that's happening out there um, and then be able to accommodate that within their publishing program or other programs is really difficult. So I think partnerships and commercial arrangements can help everyone make more and make better progress than any of us would working on our own. Well, let's close here by by taking a sort of a broad view of the future. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Harrison Curver and Mary Byers published a book called Race for Relevance that was uh, precisely about the issue of, of, you know, associations and how they need to adapt to remain relevant. And that book had some specific cases and, you know, lessons learned. But ultimately, the message seemed, you know, to me at least, to be all about finding a new value proposition for their membership. I mean, one of the things they say is the the way associations become more successful is to help their members do the same. So just to close, where do you think overall the, the you know, the new value propositions for societies lie uh, based on what you're seeing in the business? Um, I actually interviewed Harrison recently, which was uh, very interesting. And I think that message about um, the way associations become more successful is to help their members do the same really still resonates. And in fact, I think it applies to all of us. I think the way for publishers to become more successful is to help our society partners to do the same. Um, But in terms of the new value propositions, I honestly think the new value propositions are really in many ways the same as the old, but probably delivered in new, more flexible, interactive and engaging ways, um, which we're now able to do because we're in this um, very technologically advanced age compared with where we've been in in the past. One um, quote from one of the respondents to our society survey that that especially kind of rang true with me, this was from our survey of young scientists, was one of the respondents said, social gatherings, as in um, online gatherings, don't work nearly as well as bringing people together for a common goal, work-related. So give people a task that they're personally interested in to do and need to work together to accomplish. And I, to me, that's really what societies are all about. It's bringing people together and sharing a common goal that they can work together to achieve, whether that's disseminating information, whether that's putting forward the cause of their discipline to uh, politicians to make sure that the curriculum is right, whether it's joining people up with mentors who can help them develop their career. I think bringing people together, and I think actually this can be done socially as well as um, in person, but bringing people together is really what societies, for me, are all about, and that's the reason why they have been successful in the past, and if they can continue to find ways to do that innovatively and engagingly in ways that work for members at all stages of their career arc, I think they will continue to thrive. Alice Meadows, thanks very much. Thank you. And thank you for dropping in to the Scholarly Kitchen podcast for July 31st, 2013. Be sure to visit scholarlykitchen.sspnet.org, where every day the kitchen's team of pundit chefs 
serves up a fresh helping of what's hot and cooking in the scholarly publishing world. You can also comment on this podcast episode on its blog page, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks to the Society for Scholarly Publishing for its support of this project and for hosting our audio files, and to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for use of its studio and production facilities. This is Stuart Wills from Science Magazine. Until next time, on behalf of SSP and all of the chefs in the scholarly kitchen, bon appétit.